Good evening. It is good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? No better place to be. Especially when the world is just about as crazy as it can get. You come into the house of the Lord, you worship the Lord, and you talk about and sing about who he is and what he means to you. And it's amazing how quickly things change, the perspective changes, and then you realize that all of these things will become the kingdoms of our God. Amen. In that day, we'll rejoice. But until then, we're here on a Wednesday night studying God's word in the book of Ezra. You can turn with me in the book of Ezra to chapter 7. We're going to look at chapters 7 and 8 this evening. And uh, this is the part of the book that really Ezra lived through. Everything in chapters 1 through 6, he was recording history, things that had happened long before he was around. But now we're going to see a firsthand account and documentation from Ezra dealing with the events that took place when Ezra brought a number of Jews from captivity in Babylon and the kingdom of Persia into the promised land to bring religious reform. Uh, Let's open in a word of prayer this evening. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we ask that you would touch our hearts this evening for being here and in your word. And Lord, we, we really do desire to hear from you. So, oh Lord, though we ourselves are not worthy, we know we're made worthy in Jesus Christ. We know that all that Jesus did for us is finished and that we can simply be in your presence, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed because you loved us so, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. With that truth, we come to your word and we come boldly before your throne of grace, asking for help and assistance in our time of need. We pray that we would receive it this evening by your Spirit's power, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's read a little bit. We'll look at verses 1 through 10 in Ezra chapter 7. We read that after these things, and of course that would be all of the things we talked about in chapters 1 through 6, all the things that Ezra recorded for us. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zarahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king had granted him everything he asked. For the hand of the Lord was, his God was upon him. And some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king, and he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That's Ezra's introduction. As I said, everything up to this point was history recorded and compiled by Ezra. This is now the portion of the book that Ezra lived through, the things that Ezra did and accomplished. He was a priest living in Babylon during the reign of Artaxerxes Longinimus, the king of Persia. Now, Artaxerxes was king from 465 to 425 BC. And we're going to see in chapter 7 that God was faithful to his people. God was faithful to his people. 
And Ezra, more than anything else, makes it clear that God is always faithful to his people when his people are faithful to him. And they do the things that he's called them to do. They experience the outpouring of God's blessings. But God is faithful whether we're faithful or not. God is always faithful. Now, Ezra, a priest, was a descendant of Aaron through his son, that is Aaron's son, Eliezer, and his grandson Phinehas, talked about in Numbers chapter 25. Now, this is a long list of fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. There's a reason why a priest might give you his genealogy, his full genealogy, back to Aaron. See, this genealogy proved that he was a direct descendant of Aaron, and by having this genealogy, he could legitimately say, I am a priest of the descendants of Aaron. Not just a Levite, but a priest. And in fact, his great-grandfather Hilkiah was the high priest who led the last great revival in Judah under Josiah. We talked about that in 2 Kings 22. So he comes from a line of priests, good men. Aaron, Eliezer, Phinehas, who was a hero of the wilderness experience. And then you have all this list of names that means nothing to us, but means everything to him and to his ability to prove he is a priest of the line of Aaron. You had to have a genealogy if you were going to prove that. Now, he was called by God to leave Babylon and serve his people as a teacher of the law in Jerusalem. A little bit of a history of the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The temple had been rebuilt 57 years earlier during the reign of Darius Histispes in 515 BC. That's what we've been studying recently. And this man had been faithfully teaching God's word in Babylon. He was not among the priests who were sacrificing animals in Jerusalem. So he wasn't in Jerusalem, so therefore as a priest... He was teaching people God's word, teaching the law. He was a teaching priest, a scribe, whereas many of the priests were actually doing the work of the priesthood, sacrificing animals and serving in the rebuilt temple, which had been rebuilt, as I said, about 57 years earlier. So it's important to see that sometimes, you know, he's a priest. I I guess you could say his destiny was to be working in the temple, but because he wasn't living in Jerusalem, He could have said, well, I can't be a priest. Jerusalem is where the temple is, and I'm here in Babylon, so therefore, I guess, uh, you know, I really don't have anything to do. But you see, he devoted himself to the law. Even though he was not performing the sacrifices, we learn that he devoted himself to the law and to teaching the law. It is so important to see that. It says in verse 10, he devoted himself to the study and observance of the law, and that's important because he didn't just know the law, he obeyed the law. A lot of people that know things, they don't necessarily do them. And I've always been impressed by a person who learns things and then actually does them. People who learn things and don't do them, less impressive. He was an impressive man. He had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And this is the, this is the thing I want to point to, and teaching. And to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. It is so important that you pass on the things that you learn in this life all the things you learn in this life, but especially those spiritual lessons. Parents, you're passing them on to your children, maybe to your grandchildren, maybe to the children in your Sunday school class, or your neighborhood, or a ministry you're involved in, or people who you love as family and you pour into them. You're, you're supposed to be passing on a legacy of spiritual heritage to the next generation. 
You can even pass it on to the same generation, your generation. But what's important, and I think we all find fulfillment in Christ when we not only study and obey the word, but then we share it with others and teach others the truth of God's word. And I think that's so important to make a point of. It, it isn't enough to just become really smart. It isn't enough to just obey the word. But if you do obey the word, you're going to teach the word. And that's what Ezra saw as his responsibility. I indeed think it is every one of our responsibilities to do likewise. So, he was a diplomat as well who obtained Artaxerxes' full support in reforming the religious welfare of the Jews. His mission is to help, to assist. And because of that, he goes to the king, and we're going to see in a minute, receive the document, giving him the permission he needed to do these things. But he was a diplomat who obtained his, uh, the, the, the king of Persia's full support to bring religious reform and to reform the religious welfare of the Jews. Now, Artaxerxes, the king, who gave him this permission, was the son of King Xerxes. He, this man, Artaxerxes, may have, although we don't know for sure, may have even been the son of Queen Esther, who, of course, was married to Xerxes. Uh, that would give us some understanding as to why Artaxerxes was so sympathetic to the Jewish people, if indeed his mother was Esther. But we don't know that. In either case, this man was influenced by the Jews in a positive way. And so he issued the decree for Ezra to return to Jerusalem and bring religious reform. And one of the things we learn is he attributed the full support of Artaxerxes, which he received, not to Artaxerxes as much as to the hand of the Lord his God. Did you see that? That phrase that occurs in verse 6 and in verse 9 also occurs in verse 28 of this chapter, and three times in the next chapter, and twice in the book of Nehemiah. It's this phrase that the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. He recognized it was God's hand upon his life. I believe the reason that that phrase occurs over and over again is, is because as Ezra studied the word of God, he realized that if anything good or blessed were to happen according to God's word, it wasn't something he earned. It wasn't something he did. It wasn't something he was worthy of. It was God's hand upon him. So I want you to think about some of the things that have happened in your life that we can describe not as tragedies or difficulties, but as blessings. Things that have happened in your life, things that, have, that, have, that you've always wanted to accomplish, that maybe it's a job, maybe it's a career, maybe it's an education, a family, whatever it is, you, you see good things in your life. And it's important, like Ezra, to stop and say, this is because the hand of the Lord, the God of Israel, is upon me. And he said that so many times. It, it must have been something he was known for saying for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And this, of course, is Ezra writing this of himself. But when you know that it's God's hand upon your life that brings blessing, you're less likely to think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart. You know, I invested in the market and I did really well. And, man, I'm really something. Well, you know, we know what happened with Nebuchadnezzar when he started to pat himself on the back and think, oh, look at this great Babylon that I have created, that I've built. And, of course, God had to humble him. But Ezra's a humble man. He understands any good thing that's happened in his life is because of the hand of God. Can you say that? Amen? Any good thing that's happened in your life is because the hand of God has been upon you. 
Just always remember that, maybe even say that occasionally to remind yourself of that truth. This man was a leader who led a great number of Jews to Jerusalem to serve God and his people, and this happened in 458 B.C. Now, they arrived in Jerusalem after traveling about four months from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he attributed his safe journey to the to Jerusalem, to the gracious hand of his God. So again, in verse 9, he said the reason we got there safe, basically, you know, was the gracious hand of his God was on him. He thanked God and knew God had protected him. He knew God had blessed him. He knew that God was the source of all blessings. And he was a student of the law of the Lord, a teacher of the law in Israel, devoting himself to learning and obeying, but also teaching God's word to his fellow Jews. So he sees a need, he knows there's a a need for religious reform in Jerusalem. And he, being equipped and called to do this, realizes he can go there and affect the lives of the Jews who had been faithful to return to Judah to rebuild the temple, and then ultimately we'll see rebuilt the city. Not yet, but will rebuild the city. All right, so now what he does, Ezra includes a letter all of the documentation that gave him the authority to bring that religious reform. And Artaxerxes, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to do this in 458 B.C. Uh, Let's read verses 11 through 26. Now, this is a letter that Artaxerxes wrote to Ezra, giving the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem. And uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 11, Ezra writes, This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest and teacher, a man, learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings, I now decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money... Be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. 
And you, Esther, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. And so you have this letter giving Ezra carte blanche. Really, there were some limits, but he had all that he needed to do what he had been called by God to do. You could see the favor of Artaxerxes upon this man and upon the Jews, clearly. Uh, he, he says to the people of Trans-Euphrates, which were the non-Jewish people in the area of what is today Israel or, or, or Judah, uh, he speaks to them in a way where he essentially says, look, give these people what they need. And, and this is what I desire, and this is what I'm giving them permission to do. Now, Ezra introduced himself again as a priest, a teacher, a student of God's word, and then he includes this letter, which is written in Aramaic, one of the three languages that the Bible is written in. The international language of that day was Aramaic. But this was a letter and a decree that Ezra simply copied without translating it into Hebrew. He just lifted it, cut and paste, dropped it in his letter or his book uh, from the original source. He didn't bother to translate it. And he recognized, the, the man, Artaxerxes, recognized that Ezra was a priest and a teacher of the law of God. You don't see... A secular leader like this often acknowledge the calling of a man of God. But we have had leaders, even recently, not at the moment, but that have acknowledged spiritual leaders, men and women who are called by God to serve God. And it's always a blessed thing to see a leader of a nation or, or, or even a kingdom or a king or a queen acknowledge a man or a woman of God. And I'm glad to see this, and I believe that's one of the reasons that not only was Ezra blessed, but the kingdom of Persia was blessed as well. Now, he gave permission for the Jews, including priests and Levites, to return. They needed permission to return. He gave them that permission and commissioned Ezra to return to Jerusalem and make all of these reforms, providing him with the financial resources, giving him permission to raise additional funds to go to these treasuries, which are like banks, and withdraw the funds necessary for what they were needing to do. He also provided Ezra with a generous spending account, as you saw, uh, from the royal treasury, because he trusted Ezra to use the finances wisely. That says a lot. If somebody gives you a blank check or their credit card or access to their bank account, they trust you. Would you agree? Yeah, if someone gives you their PIN number, they, they probably really trust you or their password, or something of that nature. But he gave the temple and its servants a religious tax exemption as well. That doesn't happen all too often, but they did receive a tax exemption from the Persian government. And he authorized Ezra to create a religious judicial legal system for the Jews. They could enforce the Jewish law. And that was something that was included in this letter. A couple of things I noticed in verses 25 uh, through 26 uh, which I believe we read, he acknowledged and trusted that Ezra had godly wisdom. He believed this man was a, a man of wisdom. He trusted this man because it was a, he was a godly man with godly wisdom. And he trusted Ezra to appoint and train godly men within the system. He authorized this judicial legal system to sentence and even punish any and all offenders. So you get the impression from this letter, Ezra must have been 
a very highly trusted official in Persia. Like Nehemiah, we'll see when we get to that book in a couple weeks. This was a man who had the ear of the king of the empire, and he also had the trust of this man Darius, or excuse me, um, Artaxerxes. He had the trust of these Persian officials. They didn't even question. They knew they could trust this man. And I think about that. I mean, being trustworthy today, it's kind of a, a lost characteristic, isn't it? There aren't too many people you can trust anymore. I mean, our government's like pretty much thoroughly corrupt. Uh, so much of what goes on around us, I mean, you, you, it's hard to trust salespeople. It's, it's hard to trust anybody anymore. I mean, someone's always trying to scam you. If somebody calls you on the phone and they tell you they want to help you with your computer and all you need to do is like log on and give them permission, I, I don't think I need to tell you that that's a scam, right? Or they want to help you out, so they're asking for personal information. So, yeah, they can help you out. They can take all your money and help themselves out with it. There are a lot of untrustworthy people in our society today. Sadly, some of those untrustworthy people are leading churches. Some of those untrustworthy people have gotten involved in ministry, and they really live to just take advantage of people. It's, it's really pretty sickening, to be honest. Uh, there's that, and then there's governor that's, uh, governors and, and, and senators and congressmen and presidents are supposed to serve us, the people, just serving themselves. And you can become very cynical. But every once in a while, you meet someone like an Ezra who you can really trust. And uh, if you are a supervisor or a manager and you have someone working for you that you can trust, you know what what I say is true. It is a valuable thing to have someone who works for you or with you that you can trust. And I have to say, I trust all those leaders that we have serving in the church. I do. They wouldn't be serving if we didn't trust them. So we're very fortunate. But mostly in the world today, you just can't trust anybody. And it's just become such a horrible culture for that. I mean, I remember growing up, you could trust people, you know, teachers and police officers and firemen, you know, they they were just trusted. They were given trust without question. And and maybe some of that shouldn't have been done. But today, it's the opposite. You're suspicious of everyone. You know, your neighbor, you move into a neighborhood and your neighborhood, your neighbor uh, comes over and uh, you're like, what does this guy want? You know, they may just want to greet you and welcome you to the neighborhood. He, he wants to borrow my tractor or my, wants to borrow my lawnmower. You know, right, we have become extremely suspicious, and especially in this area, right? Haven't we? We don't trust anybody. And I, I don't know that we can, but still, I have to say it's a sad thing that things have devolved to the point where your first go-to reaction is to be untrustworthy or untrusting of someone because you think they're untrustworthy. Well, this is the beauty of this situation, Ezra was such a man of character that he was trusted implicitly. You know, I think that's what you want to do. You want to strive to be the kind of person that once someone gets to know you, they trust you. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if you prove yourself trustworthy. And that's what we should be working on. Not worrying about who is untrustworthy. Make sure that you're living your life in such a way, according to God's word, that people know they can trust you. And I think that becomes a wonderful example. Ezra, clearly a man of trust. Now, Ezra also praised the Lord. In verse 27, we read in verses 27 and 28, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me 
before the king and his advisors and, and all the king's powerful officials. Now, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Again, you see that phrase, the hand of the Lord my God is upon me. He understood that all of this was God's doing, and so he praised the Lord, the God of our fathers. It was him who put it in the king's heart. It was him who was working through the king. He's grateful to the king, but he doesn't even give the king the the glory. He gives God the glory for working through the king. And he knows it's God. And sometimes we fail to notice those things. By the way, verses uh, 27 uh, in chapter 7 through the rest of the book are once again written in Hebrew. It was just that couple of sections where letters were included that was written in Aramaic. But he praised the Lord for putting it in this king's heart to honor the temple. Not to honor him as much as to honor the temple. And again, attributed the favor of this king, Artaxerxes, and his officials toward him to the Lord's good favor. That is God's grace. It's God's grace. That's the reason why you've been favored by God, because of his grace and his mercy and his love for you. And he understood that. And he attributed his courage, because it took courage to do what he was about to do. He attributed his courage to lead his fellow Jews to Jerusalem to the hand of the Lord his God. Even his courage came from God. This is a man who understood his own strength. It was in God. Now, one of the other phrases you saw there a number of times throughout this chapter was the God of heaven. And I want to explain why Up until the time of the captivity, you heard the phrase, the Lord of the whole earth, or the Lord of the earth. You would would hear this often, God, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of the earth, the Lord of the whole earth. Then you get to the captivity, and you see this phrase used more often than not, the God of heaven. Now, one of the reasons I think that that phrase changed is because before Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, the presence of God was like visibly over the temple. Before the temple was destroyed, God's presence was, even, even if the Shekinah glory of God wasn't visible at that time, which I believe it perhaps was, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, you see there's a, a chapter where Ezekiel sees, it's a vision, but he sees the presence of God depart from the temple because the people were so corrupt. But up until that point, all the way back to the time of Moses, The people had had their temple, well, their tabernacle before that, and then their temple, and the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And God was thought of as being on the earth, in their their world, and they in his presence, because there was a physical manifestation, but also the understanding that while the temple was there, God was there. But when they were taken into captivity, and the temple was destroyed, and the Ark hidden or destroyed, we don't know, and the Shekinah glory of God departing from the temple, they started to think of God as being distant, not on the earth, but in heaven. They still acknowledged God, they worshiped God, but he was the God of heaven, not the God of the earth. And that, of course, all changed when Jesus Christ came, which we celebrate around Christmas time, and he was born into this world, and then, once again, becoming a man, of course, we could once again refer to God as not only the God of heaven and earth, 
or heaven, but the God of heaven and earth. And so I think it's important to know why that phrase was used. You'll see that phrase a lot in this time in their history, in the, in the books of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That's the kind of, uh, well, not Nestor, but Ezra, Nehemiah. You'll see that the God of heaven, that was the concept that they had of God. I know a lot of people, even some Christians, who think of God as the man upstairs or God who's far away, God in heaven. They don't tend to think of God being ever-present with them. But a spirit-filled Christian knows better, amen? Because God is within us. He's poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts by faith. So we have the living God living within us. We are now, as Paul says, the temple, the nows, the holy place, the most holy place, the temple of the Spirit. So we don't need a temple. We are the temple. And God's Spirit dwells in us. The Shekinah glory of God, the kabod, the weight of God's glory, dwells within us. And so... We don't think of God, at least I hope we don't, as being far away. Because as Jesus told us, where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. So our concept as Christians in the church, our concept of God is one of being in his presence at all times. But they didn't have that concept. because Not that they felt abandoned by God, but they had abandoned God, and God's presence had abandoned them. Now they're being restored. 57 years earlier, Zerubbabel and Joshua and others came and they rebuilt the temple. And then we'll see Ezra brings religious reform. Nehemiah rebuilds the city. And they slowly begin to have a a concept of God being with them. So that when ultimately the Messiah is born, they're looking for God to be in their presence and they in his. They're looking for, for God to come. They're looking for him to arrive as promised the Messiah. So that's an interesting study, but it's just important to understand why, why those words are employed. Well, let's look at chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we learn some things. Not just that God was faithful to his people, he was faithful to his people, Israel, but that the people of Israel were faithful to their God. And we see that they responded to God's blessings by obeying him with Ezra as their leader. Now, in verses 1 through 14, We read that these are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me, Ezra writes, from Babylon during the reign of Artaxerxes. And he goes on through the rest of the verses all the way down to verse 14 to list the names and the descendants and the numbers of men. And I will summarize it for you. Here he records 1,496 faithful priests, people, who traveled with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he lists them by family. So the names are there, the numbers are there. That's unimportant to our study, uh, but that's the documentation of the men and their families. These men were willing to trust the Lord and to follow this man, Ezra the priest. How do you know a person, a man or a woman, is called to be a leader? There'll be people following them. You know, there are lots of people that want to be leaders, but nobody follows them because they're not leaders. And uh, if a leader, whether it be a president or a senator or a CEO or a governor is leading and people are not in favor of that person. Their polls are underwater and people just don't follow them. It's because they're not a leader. You can't call somebody a leader when most of the people don't want to follow them. People like to think of themselves as leaders, but a leader is recognized and identified by those that follow him or her. And this is the truth. Ezra was a leader and people followed him. These men were willing to leave the comfort and prosperity of Babylon to faithfully follow the Lord. Not Ezra. They were following the Lord. Ezra was just leading them to Jerusalem. 
And then Ezra recorded 258 faithful Levites. Now, Levites were not priests, but they were related to the priests, and they assisted the priests. They did all of the work, a lot of the work in the temple uh, with the priests. Many times they served alongside the priests. And Ezra, in verses 15 through 20, records the 258 faithful Levites and temple servants who traveled with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so I'm just going to read through some of this. Ezra tells us in verse 15, I assembled them, that is all of these men, at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. And when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarab, uh, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joarib and Elphanan, who were men of learning, and I sent them to Edo, the leader in Kasaphia. I told them what to say to Edo and his kinsmen, the temple servants in Kasaphia, so they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. And because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah together with Jeshaiah, the descendants of Merai, and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. So... They needed Levites. They had priests. They needed Levites. And so the word goes out, and God lays it upon the hearts of some of these Levites to join this group traveling to Jerusalem. I want you to notice some things about Ezra's leadership. And as we come to the end of our study, it's, just, it's important to look at the lives and the character of leadership. You, you want to look at men and women that God uses and, and notice the reasons why. And I'll tell you this, this man, Ezra, took the necessary time to plan. You ever try to follow a leader that doesn't plan? Not a pleasant experience. Not at all. He took the time to plan and prepare to ensure the success of their mission. I was a project manager for many years before I left my career to go into ministry full-time. And I would say that 80% of what I did was planning. I wasn't even always on the implementation team. Sometimes I was a part of that, but most of what I did was plan. We had to do all of this paperwork, white papers and project papers and project plans, just to get a project off the ground. What did we do? We tried to anticipate everything that might go wrong. We even had a process in place for how we would change the plan, change management plan, we called it. And there were all these different elements, and it was so exhausting sometimes, but it ensured the success of the project to have a plan. This man had a plan. He recognized that it would be impossible for them to complete their mission without the Levites. So he delegated, another thing he did, he delegated the necessary responsibility and authority to other leaders to gather more servants. He didn't go out there and try to do it himself. Got hold of a group of guys and said, hey, we need more Levites. See what you can do. So they went out, they gathered these 258 faithful Levites to join them in this endeavor. And, of course, he did the most important thing that he continues to do. He attributed the provision of the Levites and the temple servants to the gracious hand of his God. Now, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday, how a dead church is a church that doesn't look to the Spirit of God or to Spirit-filled and Spirit-inspired teachers. 
Here's the thing. If you have a group of people trying to do a work for God and they're not filled with the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, it is a fruitless endeavor. You have to be waiting for God to do the work and waiting on God and looking for God to do the work. And it might be tempting to look at this account and think, well, Ezra was a great leader. But he was a good leader, but he was called by God. But he tells us over and over again that God provided the priests. God provided the strength. God provided the resources. God provided the courage. God provided the Levites. He doesn't want you to think that he was the one providing these things. He wants us all to know it was God. A good leader is one that waits on God, amen? Who waits for God to provide and doesn't get involved taking away the responsibility from the Holy Spirit or from God and trying to do it himself, herself. That is such a really important characteristic in leadership. It's one of the reasons why when someone comes to me and says, you know what, Pastor, it would be great if. It'd be great if we had. It would be great if we did. And I, I will oftentimes say, yeah, I agree. It would be great. Let's pray. Okay. Oh, oh, you mean you don't want to do anything until we pray? No, I don't want to do anything until we pray. Okay, well, how long are we going to pray? Until God moves. Well, what if God doesn't move? Then we don't move. Really? You mean, you? yeah. You think I want to move without God? Another little analogy or metaphor from the scriptures that, you know when the Israelites would move the tabernacle in the wilderness? When the Shekinah glory of God moved. When it lifted, they said, oh, guess we're going. And then they would wait. They would line up and they'd get ready. And then when the glory of God moved, they followed the glory of God. That, if there is one quote-unquote secret, because it's not really a secret, to successful ministry and spiritual ministry especially, that's it. When do you move? When God moves. There's a book I've recommended it to many people. It's called Experiencing God. It was written by Henry Blackaby and Claude King, and I think it is one of the best books you can read. I've done several book studies and home groups with this. I've read it myself multiple times. I even had an opportunity to hear Henry Blackaby speak down in Washington. And one thing that comes out loud and clear in his book, highly recommend it, is that if you want to be where God is working, wait to see where God is working and get with the project. Get with the program. Rather than stepping out and saying, God bless our endeavors, he suggests you stop, you look around, you pray, and you ask God, you know, what's going on here? Where are you working? And when you see God working, get on that bandwagon. And that's how you'll experience God. That should probably drive what church you attend, what ministry you get involved in, what people you speak to, you know, what missions trips you go on. It should be God's Spirit leading you. But if you get out in front of that, you can't experience God in that way. So anyway, just a little endorsement for a great book which will help you to practically apply the lessons that Ezra applied in his life and was blessed by. So, the gracious hand of his God. Again, we see it in this chapter. Now, Ezra proclaimed a fast. Let's look at verse 21, verses 21 through 23. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast. Now, what's a fast? It's it's depriving yourself so that you can be about God's business. It's so that you can, rather than thinking about eating and cooking and being involved in the daily administration of food, you can spend that time in prayer and seeking God. He says, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed the fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God 
and ask him for a safe journey. For us and for our children with all our possessions. So you see their wives and children came along. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Now, we don't know exactly how he answered the prayer, but we know they got there safely, so that in and of itself is an answer. But it could have been very practical. It could have been just that God provided the people to protect them or for whatever it was, they knew God and answered their prayer. But he proclaims a fast. Now, fasting is one of the things that no one wants to do. No one. Let's be honest. Who likes to fast? Nobody. There are some people that will fast when they want to lose weight. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about instead of eating, you're praying. Instead of preparing a meal or shopping for a meal, you're studying. You're taking all the energy and the time you would put into that and putting it into a a time of fasting. Now, people will oftentimes pray, but most of us in our flesh don't really enjoy prayer meetings, let's be honest. There are a few people I've met that say, oh, I just love a prayer meeting. Most people, their flesh just recoils at the thought of prayer. Most, I'm just being honest. And then you have a fast, which would make it even worse, right? So now you not only do you have to sit in a prayer meeting, you can't eat anything. I mean, I'll go to the prayer meeting if they got coffee and cake. But you mean to tell me we're going to pray we're not even going to eat? Now, I'm being a little cynical, but if we know our flesh, we know that there's nothing within us that would say, I just want to pray and not eat, okay? So what was this all about? It was about humbling themselves, trusting God, looking to God, again, waiting on God so that they might have a safe journey. If they were all killed on the way, well, that wasn't going to accomplish God's will. So they were praying for a safe journey. I believe they were fasting and praying and waiting for an answer. And I believe they received the answer, whatever that was, and God confirmed it was time to leave. This man, Ezra, put his trust in the Lord for the lives of 1,754 men and their families and their possessions. You bet you he wanted to pray and fast. At a time when he needed physical strength, he chose to find spiritual strength through fasting. At a time of great national pride, he chose to humble himself before his God. And at a time of great personal danger, he chose to pray to his God for safety. He could have went to the king and said, you know, I know God will protect us, but, you know, just in case, can you send a couple of ninjas with us, you know, just to watch out, have our backs, you know. Listen, he was ashamed to do that. You You want to know why? Because he went and told the king how good God was. And how God had provided for all their needs and provided everything they needed. Now he's supposed to go and say, oh, but, you know, we can't really trust God for our safety. So he just sent some soldiers. He realized that was antithetical. That was hypocritical. You can't say, I trust God, and say, oh, but I don't trust God. So I admire this man. He was worried about, you know, concerned about their safety. So what did he do? He didn't hire armed security. By the way, can I just say this? I'll get it off my chest now. I'll feel better. There was a while where we were having a lot of church shootings. Then COVID came, of course, and that seemed to end that. But it was very distressing to to see so many houses of worship being targeted. I mean, it still happens. I'm not saying it, it doesn't. But for a while, that's all we were hearing. And there were a lot of people that came to me and talked to me about things we could do, you know, to protect ourselves. And I have to be honest. I said, well, look, um someone comes in with a gun, I'm probably going to be the first guy to get it because I'm the one talking most of the time 
and I'm right here. I'm like a, a big bullseye, right? So I'm like, and I'm not worried about it. Well, you know, you really, do I really need to worry? Do I need to worry? Or do I need to pray? We went to a seminar that was held by the county police, and they did a wonderful job of scaring us. They had these vignettes and people coming in and shooting people and everything. It was a room full of pastors and church leaders. And everybody was, you know, looking at these things and thinking, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. At that time when all this was happening, I brought two, two of our leaders uh, with us. And we sat there and we sat there. And then it was Q&A, right? Oh, by the way, they even fed us. It was kind of nice. So <laughs> no fasting. So as we were there... I thought to myself, I said, okay, so what are we supposed to do? I mean, this is a very real possibility. It's happened. I've, I've read these things in the paper. I've, I've seen them in the news. So I raised my hand. I said, well, what can you recommend that we do? What's, I mean, clearly this is, we're vulnerable in some way, but what do you recommend we do? And they were like, well, you know, you can hire security. I said, okay, well, do you have a list of anybody you can recommend? No. I said, well, you know, at least they fed me. And I walked out of there and I prayed and I said, you know what, Lord? I think you can protect us better than armed security. But there were a lot of people that got all wigged out about that. And I was not one of them. Because I thought to myself, I'm not being reckless by saying this. God can protect you. And if God has called you to be in his presence and he allows something like that to happen, then I kind of trust God with it. But listen, I trust that God protects us. I believe that God protects us by his spirit, and I pray that God protects us, and he always has. I'm not going to start doubting him now. But I went through that, and it was aggravating to me because every other week I had somebody coming to me with some suggestion that was off the wall, to be honest. Trust God. Ezra understood. It's God who protects us, and he understood it, and he said it, and he wrote it, and here it is for us to consider this evening. So he was ashamed to trust in the king's soldiers and horsemen to protect them from their enemies. At a time of great vulnerability, and he was vulnerable, he chose to trust in God's provision alone. The angel of the Lord encamps about those that fear him. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. You know what an angel of the Lord can do? 185,000 men killed in one evening. So I think we're protected. I think we have the security we need. That doesn't mean we're not, you know, taking chances. It doesn't mean we're, we're, we're going to take chances. It doesn't mean we're not being careful. But having said that, you have to trust God. He trusted in the Lord's protection because of the calling of the Lord upon his life and upon their lives. Trusting in men would have forfeited the awesome blessings of God. See, when you need more resources for the church and you start with the tin cup, you know, and you start begging people for money. If you get the money, it isn't from God. It's from guilt. And, and if you need these resources and God hasn't provided them, then you, you can pray. And if God doesn't provide them, doesn't provide them if, he, if he hasn't provided them, then maybe you don't need them. But I'll tell you what, you don't want to be in a position of having to do the work of the Holy Spirit because guess what? You're not the Holy Spirit. And he does so much better than we can do. Amen? God provides. Where he guides, he provides. And uh, this man knew that. He had tested, uh, excuse me, testified that the gracious hand of his God was on everyone who looks to him. And he had testified that God's great anger is against all those that forsake him. Again, he put his 
trust in God. He trusted in the Lord's protection because of the calling of the Lord upon their lives. Now, the Lord answered their prayers with a promise of his protection. At a time when they could have petitioned the king, they petitioned God in prayer. We're going into an election season, and who knows what the next couple of years are going to bring. But I say this, petition God in prayer. That's more important than the petitions maybe you should or shouldn't sign, petitioning God in prayer. Now, Ezra used godly wisdom. We've seen that he was a wise man. In verses 24 through 30, I like this. This is a very practical thing that he did. In verse 24, we read, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers, and I weighed out to them, Uh, the offering of silver and gold, and the articles that the king, his advisors, and officials in all Israel present, uh, uh, and all Israel present there, had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious gold. And I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. Amen, right? There's a couple of things I want to mention here. He used godly wisdom to protect their financial resources as they traveled from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the balance to trusting God. You trust God, you use wisdom. Okay? Like, for example... During that whole time with the church shootings and everything, we locked down the church. We only had one entrance, all right? That was just wisdom. Before that, we didn't really think much about it. After that, we did. That's wisdom, but we still trusted God. You can trust God and use wisdom, right? You can trust God and use wisdom. He did both. And, and he realized, look, they have these financial resources. They need to do something. He entrusted the stewardship of their precious metals to reliable leaders, and he spread them out among the 12 leaders, and that provided additional protection because not one person had all of the resources. He spread it out. That's one of the laws of insurance. I worked for an insurance company for many years. A spread of risk, they call it. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, giving them all equal responsibility promoted unity and it diminished competition as well. He didn't give one person all the responsibility. He spread it out. And he held these leaders accountable for their stewardship over these precious metals. By the way, accountability is a great thing. Very important to have accountability at a church. They were consecrated these individuals, and therefore they were accountable to God. They would be audited, though. Did you see that? They had to weigh in and weigh out. They, they weighed out the, the resources, and then when they got to the temple, they would have to return the resources, and it would have to weigh the exact same amount that they weighed in. That's called an audit. And they held them accountable. They were accountable to God, but they were also accountable to others. And they were made responsible for these things only after they were made accountable. See, I don't think you should ever give anybody responsibility until they're held accountable. You have to be given responsibility with accountability. And when someone is given responsibility but no accountability, you get problems. 
especially in the church or in government, where there's no accountability and the person has the responsibility for COVID funds, somehow they get spent on things other than COVID, right? Have you seen that recently? Why is that? Because there was responsibility, but no accountability. Very important principle. Finally, and we've seen this already, Ezra and the people arrived safely in Jerusalem, just as God had promised. The Lord fulfilled his promise of protection. It says again, on the 12th day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested for three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles in the hands of Merimuth, son of Uriah the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. So, yeah, they trusted these guys, but they still had to weigh in. They still were held accountable. See, trust must be given, accountability must be maintained. Very important principles in leadership, business, certainly. Should be government, isn't, unfortunately. But these are very important principles for leadership. The people consecrated their lives and their possessions to the Lord. Look at verse 35. In verse 35, Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. And all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, when they consecrated the 12 bulls, they did that for all the tribes of Israel. Some people will say that there are 10 lost tribes. That is, Judah and Benjamin are the only tribes left. Well, we know the Levites are left because they were talked about here. And now that we know that they sacrificed 12 bulls, one for each of the tribes, you can see that there were people from all of the tribes living in Judah at this time. There were those from the northern tribes living among them. So there are no lost tribes. That's a myth, really. This shows that they were descendants from all the 12 tribes among Israel at that time. And they delivered Artaxerxes' letter to the trans-Euphrates governors and their officials. Verse 36, they also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps, to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. So, not the most exciting chapter, or two chapters in God's word, and yet, what happened here was so important, and it's such a really great opportunity to study effective leadership. There are things that happened at in these chapters that show us just why Ezra was such a great leader. He employed a lot of really wonderful principles, which we've talked about. But perhaps the most important principle we close with is trusting God. He understood that it was God's hand that was upon him, and he trusted God because, you know what? You can trust God. God will provide for your needs. He'll provide for the needs of others. He'll provide for the needs in the church. Don't try to take that from him. Trust God with your life. Trust God with your resources. Trust God with your time. Trust God with the church. And trust God with the future. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do trust you, and we ask that you would help us to continue trusting you. We want to trust you with our lives. We want to share our faith in you with others. And in order to do that, we have to have faith in you. So increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust you. May you provide for every one of our needs, we pray.
in Jesus' name. Amen.